Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and this is Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. As a mom of four kids in New York City and a writer myself, I know all too well how short everyone is on time, so I'm here to help. I'm going to interview authors and writers of all types about their work, especially as it relates to parenting and family issues. Hopefully you can listen while doing 8 million other things and fall in love with these talented scribes and their fantastic books, essays, and songs like I have, plus get some tips on surviving parenthood. For more about me, you can check out my essays at zibbyowens.com. Please don't forget to subscribe to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. And if you can, please leave a five-star rating or a comment. Today's episode has been sponsored by Babo Botanicals. Babo Botanicals offers your family non-toxic and pure hair, skin, and sun solutions created with natural or organic solutions. Their tagline is, family comes first naturally. As an aside, I use Babo for literally all my kids' shampoos, body washes, sun lotions, and even for me too. So definitely check them out at babobotanicals.com, B-A-B-O, botanicals.com. I'm here today with Caitlin Macy, um, who's an amazing novelist, a Yale graduate with an MFA from Columbia. Uh, Caitlin has contributed to The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, and Oh, The Oprah Magazine, among others. Her three books, called The Fundamentals of Play, Spoiled, which are stories, and now her recent release, Misses, have received enormous praise. She lives in Manhattan with her husband and two daughters, so welcome to Caitlin. Thank you so much for having me. Um, So just to jump right in, in the description on your website of your collection of stories called Spoiled, um, you say you turn an, this is a quote, you turn an unsparing eye on affluent and educated women who nevertheless struggle to keep their footing in their relationships in life. And I feel like this is the overarching theme in so much of your work. How did you grow so fascinated with, with this particular group of women? So our generation, more than any other that came before, I think, were the meritocracy, and I think it's utterly a generational preoccupation because so many of us, my peers and I, grew up in either modest or straightforward, straight-ahead middle-class backgrounds, and then through college, through going to elite colleges, I think there's one reason, one reason why our generation is so obsessed with college admissions, but colleges became a springboard for people to jump, well, let's not say jump class levels, because class is, I think, more complicated and, and, and more of a complicated question, but at least jumped income strata. So, you know, some people a couple rungs up from their parents, some people 10 rungs up. And there were so many opportunities for people who were so disposed to, you know, say, go to Wall Street, corporate law, Silicon Valley, the tech startups, Hollywood, etc. There were opportunities for people who who wanted that to go and, and make money. And so you have women who either through their own careers or through, in some cases, marriage, marrying guys who, who followed a, a, a similar path, find themselves in places that are unfamiliar and maybe those places have nannies and drivers and private school admissions where they weren't living in places like that before. I'm using places loosely, obviously. And what I find interesting is not so much the trappings, like the you know the black SUVs. That's that's been done. That's been that's been done to saturation, and it's it's it's. Um, I actually find it a tiny bit boring, but this the way 
in which the trappings of the lifestyle affect these women psychologically and emotionally so that when they find themselves in these new worlds, how do they cope with it? And some cope brilliantly. And, and for some, it's, it's quite anxiety-producing. So I think that's why I've gotten sort of stuck there and have been focused on that for a while, just because of our, our generationals. Our, our generations jump into unfamiliar footing. I think it also, um, the way you contrast sort of old versus new money, the sort of wasp culture in versus nouveau riche, and particularly in Mrs., um, which uh, is a story that takes place, we could probably some paraphrase it better, but a story that takes place on the Upper East Side of Manhattan among uh, several different parent groups who come from different backgrounds. Um, you tell it from the point of view of Gwen Hogan, who is sort of an outsider on the outside looking in, sort of a scientist dropped in the middle of this um, craziness, um, who sort of has a... Um, I wouldn't say a judgmental view, but more of a reserved, well, maybe kind of a judgmental view of, of the whole New York <laughs> City scene. Um, and uh, and then there are these other families, like um, Jed Skinker, who owns a bank and has been around forever, and then um, John Curtis, sort of a, um, a wannabe who keeps making himself over to be different people, and is ultimately kind of a terrible guy. Um, shining a light on these kind of warring factions, these different um, groups, what do you think, does that help sort of elucidate the, the differences between all these classes, or what are you trying, how does it, take it from there. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, ram, no, I mean, I, I, I hope it, I hope it does. It's, it's sort of, it's, it's a funny moment because I love, like, I love the phrase nouveau riche, right, because it, it kind of reminds me of the 80s and the fun of the 80s and so on, but it's, it's all but dead, right? I mean, f- for those people who who have money, mo- at this point, most of it's new. We're not living in a Wharton world of, you know, sort of dominated by generational family fortunes and so on. And so it's, I think I'm sort of tolling the death knell of that that world, that sort of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, wasp aristocracy, mm-hmm. um, Right, because back in, I mean, in, in, in Wharton's novels, you had the the 400, say, and then there'd be one outsider coming in who, who chafed against the societal rules or who wasn't quite on and, you know, disobeyed, disobeyed the rules or tried to get out or, or uh, in some other way posed a challenge to the society. Whereas now... I, for instance, I've noticed on Instagram this hashtag of, uh, which I don't know if you, you yourself use it, but of, of hashtag Native New Yorker. And it's yes, interesting. Yes, I have used that hashtag, actually. It's, so it's interesting to me because it's clearly, it's a badge of honor, right? It's a point of pride. And I think what that says, I mean, if, if we had hashtags in Morton's time, nobody would, everybody would be hashtag Native New Yorker, or they wouldn't really be there except for that one character who sort of shows up and, and turns, the, turns the tables. And... Given that that's now a smaller group, that, to, to the point that it's a point of pride for people on Instagram and so, social media, I, I think that speaks to the fact that most of us are outsiders now. Or, um, I, I mean, I always feel like I have one foot in, one foot out. I don't know where where you know where you draw the line and who's an outsider, who's an insider. But um, so this moment is is 
a very different moment for Wharton. And it's also, I've been thinking, as I'm sure we all have, the last day of a lot about Tom Wolfe. Mm -hmm. And yes. it's even a very different moment from Bonfire of the Vanities because there, there's a really great article, and I keep quoting it, and I am not totally sure of the source, so I need, I need to Google it, but I believe it was James Walcott writing in Vanity Fair. But he wrote this fascinating article, one of those things that you're sitting in the doctor's office and you pick it up and then it's seminal, and you just yeah. think, what if I never sat in the doctor's office? But um, he wrote this piece... Uh, unless I'm misattributing it, about how Bonfire was pre-Clintonian. In mm -hmm. other words, you know, Bill Clinton, obviously the ultimate example of meritocracy, right? He grows up poor in a small town. He right. he skyrockets because of uh, education, you know, gets to Yale Law, gets a Rhodes, becomes president. Uh, and and it was, it was fascinating to me because I never thought about Bonfire as historical, to me, I was thinking, Bonfire is still current, you know, more or less. I hadn't read it. I'd read it in the 80s, and then I hadn't reread it. But he points out that there's, there isn't this meritocratic person. You know, there's, the, there's Sherman McCoy, the, the, the sort of the, the wasp aristocracy, and there's the scrappy Jewish lawyer. But there's, there's not the person who we all know, whom I would say most of my peers fit into this group, who just got educated and then, and then decided to get some sort of corporate job and... and, and um, and live in New York. And um, so anyway, I, I, I think at the same time, I think I have a little bit of affection, a little bit of nostalgia for that, that old world because probably because um, it's, it's all personal, right? It's always all personal. My dad's family had been sort of prominent in the 19th century. And then my dad's father at the beginning of the 20th century lost all of his money. So my dad sort of went, he experienced the highs and the lows and, um, Ended up, he grew up in, you know, a big house in Osney, New York, with, um, pretty much raised by servants, but then when his father lost all of his money, he marched him down to enlist in the Air Force. So he went into the Air Force, into the Armed Forces as the lowliest of the lows, which was an enlisted man, having, you know, grown up with, you know, chauffeurs and governesses and so on. So he experienced both sides, and so... My dad, I certainly, you know, certainly associate in some ways with that lost world, so that's probably in there too. And I think Jed Skinker's in there just to, to sort of note the passing of that world. He's the last gasp of of that world, I'd say. That's so interesting. To, that you're that's the vantage point that you're coming into this. I was trying to sort of figure out what is her fascination. How come she keeps writing about all this? <laughs> like, what is it? You know, there's usually. I feel like when writers keep going after the same subject, there's some personal, obviously, connection. So. Anyway, I think that's uh, that's really interesting. Um, where did you actually where did you grow up yourself? I grew up in Groton, Mass, um, where where the boarding school is. Uh, so and that, and that was another element. I mean, I ended up I did go to boarding school, but I, I didn't go to Groton. But my sister went there, and interestingly enough, my husband went there. So there was also that there was that that world um, that my parents were in. They weren't faculty, but you know, in some ways, they were so they had friends there and so on. So I spent a lot of time at Groton when I was young with because a number of my friends were fact brats and so that was another glimpse into this world and then I had the the funny experience of going to boarding school as did my husband actually both of us I think we're the only people in New York who went to boarding school but on financial aid so it was this funny again this funny and yang of um of having a foot in in two different worlds so yeah, I think that that it certainly was certainly there was a personal uh, had some personal investment in the theme. <laughs> you, uh, you you capture in in Mrs. in particular you capture some really funny elements of the Upper East Side. Like I'm trying not to take offense. Like I'm not sure if you meant it. I was like maybe I'm having 
occasionally on the show and she hates me. Like she hates people from the Upper East Side. Like maybe I shouldn't let her in the apartment. No, I'm kidding. But um, um, you definitely capture, you know, some of the idiosyncrasies. Well, maybe not just to the Upper East Side, but certainly to this sort of culture. But um, this one quote you have. Um, so one of the characters, Marnie, has a, a dramatic sort of play date at this the main character, Philip Eli's house, and you say, I can't, I cannot explain the effect Marnie's recounting of the playdate had on us, except to say that while we thought we would be happy to get the details, we were not. All the fun had gone out of it, not just out of gossiping, but out of getting, but out of getting and spending. Perhaps a better way to put this is that for a couple weeks, we all stopped Googling Hampton's real estate, which I like laughed out loud when I read that. That's so funny. I mean, some of the things you talk about are not even things necessarily that people talk about. I mean, I feel class is a very um, almost taboo subject um, that you sort of confront head on. Um, and so you kind of unearth all these um, unspoken differences or um, things. Anyway, you do a really, your, your keen observational eye is, is pretty good. Anyway, I particularly enjoyed, <laughs> I particularly <laughs> in, enjoyed that. Um, although I find... Um, you know, it just in talking to people, and I don't know if you find this too, for so many of us in New York, there are very few people who don't occasionally think about leaving. Like everyone's like, well, I, I, I love New York, but maybe maybe I'll just look in Connecticut or maybe I'd really love to live in California. Do you feel that way? I mean, it's hard living here. I, I, anyway. Oh, yeah. I mean, I met my husband and he, he, he actually grew up in Spain, but he's from Massachusetts. His family's from Massachusetts and I'm from Massachusetts. And I, and I just thought, done, we're out of here. That's it. Yeah. But... He would he would sort of say gently, and what am I going to do for a living? Right. I mean, and it's true. I, I swore I'd never move here, right. um, but the jobs are here, right? I wanted to, I wanted to work in publishing, and and the jobs are here. And then twenty five years go by, and you realize that you're still here, and and you're not leaving, and it is your life, and it's 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 a bit of a surprise for someone who thought that I'd always end up back in small town Massachusetts. So so tell me about your publishing journey. You went to Yale. You've got yeah. Tell me since then what what has happened. So right out of Yale, I got a job working for a literary agent. Uh, she was a woman who was sort of the doyen of children's book publishing. She had, she'd, she'd pretty much, her clients had started the YA genre. Uh, she represented Essie Hinton, Susie Hinton, Paul Zendel, Robert Cormier, all these 70s sort of problem YA novels, Paula Danziger. Uh, her name is Marilyn Marlowe. At, she was at Curtis Brown. And I was super excited to get a foot in that in the door. Um, I made sixteen thousand five hundred dollars a year, so I wasn't living large. But again, I was able to have I had an apartment on the Upper East Side in sixty seventh and first. I mean, it was it was different times, right? I, I think I paid five hundred dollars for no, my roommate paid five hundred dollars for the big room. She was she was paralegaling, and I paid four hundred dollars for the small room. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, and then and then I got a bit lucky. I ended up um, the way I ended up paying for my life because I did go back and, and get an MFA at Columbia after a couple of years was that the woman I worked for represented someone who wrote a series book for middle grade readers called The Saddle Club. Okay. And she was looking for ghostwriters. So she she hired me as a ghostwriter. And the funny thing was that I got hired as a ghostwriter, not because she had any idea that I had an interest in writing, but because I'd been a horsey kid. I'd, I'd grown up riding. And so I knew how to slot in the right words and talk about Palominos and Martingales and things like that. So that the Saddle Club, I ended up writing 13 Saddle Club novels and it paid my way through grad school, et cetera. And then um, 
had a bunch of different jobs after grad school when I was trying to finish Fundamentals of Play, which I finally sold at the end of my 20s. So just piecing it together with various, various jobs and, and cheap rents and so on. You, uh, have you seen the movie, um, you know the movie Tully that just came out? Mm-hmm. There was one movie, which now I'm forgetting the name, but Shirley's Theron and the same writer and director did. Yes. And she um, was a ghostwriter for yes, a young adult. Series. Young adult, yes. I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I completely identified with you know, going back to your town and <laughs> ranging around or whatever. Um, yeah, That's that was great. Yeah, that was done. a really good, it was a very intelligent movie. Right? Yeah. yeah. Thought-provoking. Yeah. Um, so in Mrs., um, Another scene I just want to ask you about. So after hearing mothers complain that their kids wouldn't wear their mittens, um, you talk about this main character, Gwen, who's on the outside looking at this whole scene. You say she couldn't imagine having that kind of adversarial, adversarial relationship with her only child. Sometimes she would hear them querulously addressing their nannies. Why is she wearing those pants? What happened to the ones I laid out? As if motherhood were a battle which the toddlers were winning. So I have a three and four year old and sometimes <laughs> it is easier to just send them in, you know, a tutu and belly shoes and then maybe the pants or the skirt that I had in mind. But um, the tone you have here suggests you might not agree with that decision that how could the kids actually exert that authority? Um, you know, what am I as a mom? Like, what are you saying about me here? Like, let's talk about it. <laughs> so tell me, you know, and also is this how you feel or is this is Gwen a front for you or is Gwen the anti you well it's 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 definitely Gwen I mean it's funny I had someone tell me now I'm not going to call you Caitlin anymore I'm going to call you Gwen Hogan and I was sort of flattered in a sense because right I mean everybody has their sort of morally perfect observational narrator right I'm sure Fitzgerald would have loved to be as abstemious and correct and you know, as um, sort of perfect as as Nick Carraway, but in fact he was descending into alcoholism. Um, and I think Gwen is one of these people who, because she she never has that debate that I have two or three times a day, where you're where you're going. My kid needs me, but I really want to have that glass of wine and finish the crossword and text my friend ten times and you know sort of you sort of drag yourself up from that. Yes, what is it? And you and you go and cope. I mean, my, mine are older now, but I will say my younger one for an entire year didn't didn't believe in putting socks on. So <laughs> that was that was that was my equivalent of mittens. But um, so no, she she sort of is this person. I feel like I know people like her, but but I will say more, it was more common in, in an older generation, but who has almost an excess of self-control and sort of never um, decides to sit on the sofa with a glass of wine when she should be cleaning up the apartment or helping her child or what have you. But she really suffers from that in a sense because she's unable to connect with the other moms. Because how do we how do we connect as mothers? Often it's... It's through shared confusion, complaint, you know, this is sharing our challenges and admitting how hard it is. And she's somebody who it's almost not in her code to do that because of the way she was raised. She was raised in sort of a harsh, harsh environment. And so she she almost is betraying it, it is it is a bit judgy, but I think she's almost also betraying just sort of this cannot compute don't understand because she's one of those sort of quietly on it, effective, efficient 
mothers and people who just sort of get it done. And uh, unfortunately, that makes it, or for, I mean, she's, I think of her in the book as a you know, good mother, right. but um, I trying to show different ways of being a good mother. Because I also think Philippa Lai is a good mother, even though she would maybe be right. judged as, as the worst mother of all time, but in fact, truly loves her children. So I, I, I think that in a certain sense for Gwen is handicapping because she can't reach across the divide to say, oh, my kid threw a temper tantrum today. I mean, granted, in the book, she does have an only child, and that child is incredibly tractable. So she got lucky with right. a, with a you know, you get one of the, sometimes you get an easygoing kid who's just sort of willing to comply. But in a, in a certain sense, it's, it's what isolates her. Interesting. From the fun of, <laughs> the, the, from the fun of the struggle, I'll say. Yeah. So you have a sixth grader and a ninth grader, and your book just came out in February. Right. Uh, How long did it take you to write Mrs. And where did you do it? Did you work at home? Do you have an office? Like, what was your routine in writing it? Yeah. I mean, it seems as if it took forever because I, I, I put the book down twice and I just said, I'm not, I'm not finishing it. It's not going forward. And then I sort of had this flash of insight, um, that originally, uh, some of the book was told from the perspective of Philip Eli. And every time I would get to that point in the book, say, 80, 100 pages in, I, I felt like I was hitting a wall and it was just so deadly. And it turns out that the, the insight was that these sort of crazy damaged people are not that interesting from the inside. They're, they're, they're more interesting from the outside to sort of observe and hmm. remark upon, but to, to actually go in some, someone's head who, who's crazy and damaged turned out to be a little bit boring. Mm. So once I realized that I had to excise her perspective from the novel, it just started to go so much faster and I was able to finish it quite quickly. But that was after several years of putting it up, putting it down. I did, I did a few other things while I was writing it. Um, and my, my routine, I mean, I would love to say, I've, I've listened to other women on the podcast saying similar, but I'd love to say that I have a routine and I knock out my 10 triple space pages as I just read Tom Wolfe did every day, but, um, it's, it's really hit or miss. I mean, some days I feel sort of super professional and I wake up and after a, I think 15 or 18 year wait, I finally got a maid's room in our building. We have a pre-war apartment building. I live in a pre-war building that had, that rents out these maid's rooms and you know, we were on the wait list forever. I figured I'd die before I got one, but then a couple of people moved. And so I set up the maid's room as a home office, which has been a game changer. Um, and I'd like to say that I'm down there during school hours, but it ends up being stealing two hours here and there. And then what I usually do that helps a lot is I go up to the society library on 79th and Madison, and I go up to the fifth floor writer's room and just sort of stay there for a really long day or two per week. But those are inevitably my most productive days because I'm out of the house. And I, I saw that article in the times about procrastinating. I just saw that. Yeah. I just read that. <laughs> yeah. I don't procrastinate, but I procrastinate tidy. I, uh-huh. I just start tidy and I start with kids. Right. I mean, with two kids, I can't imagine for with two kids, there's always something to do, whether mm-hmm. it's order the, the shoes or, or book the doctor's appointment or whatever. So it, it ends up being a little bit of a, just a trying to get in a couple hours, but, but not always making it. That's encouraging. <laughs> I know I had Jennifer Wallace on the other day, and she gets up at four in the morning and writes before everybody gets up. And every night now, I go to sleep thinking, "Oh, should I try to do that?" Should I try to like set an alarm? And I'm like, "I can't do it." That is so appealing to me, and I I, I flirt with that I, that idea constantly. And I think I've done it twice, and it was amazing. And I'm then, sure <laughs> it's amazing. It's just you know, Hard by to stick four with. o'clock in the afternoon, I'll be like in you know, yeah. <laughs> 
On your website, you had a link to one article you wrote in 1998 in the live section of the New York Times where you wrote about, quote-unquote, babysitting, which you said more was hanging out, basically hanging outing, um, babysitting for a 15-year-old boy in Manhattan whose mother was an actress and often not home. And, um, you know, did your experiences with that babysitting um, moment in time sort of inform more of these class distinctions that you were like was that your first intro into you know a specific um you know type of lifestyle and also I need to know if you are still in touch with this boy and what has become of him because he sounded like a pretty awesome kid (laughs) he was a great kid so I mean because I had gone to boarding school and college and so on I'd obviously like all of us spent a lot of time in living rooms of you know people who lived lived a certain kind of a life what was interesting I can I can say who it was I'm happy to say who it was it was I didn't want to at the time but I worked for Blair Brown who um was fantastic to work for and what it actually was was an introduction into the theater world hmm. which I loved and I was always a theater kid I had done and I'd been a theater kid when I was little and but Blair gave me the habit because she was super generous giving me tickets and so on. So she gave me the habit as, of going to theater as an mm. adult. And so many people of my generation, now it seems now it seems like it's back. I, maybe because of the musicals, I'm not sure. But my daughter loves going to musicals and well, you know, Evan Hansen and so on. But, but there was this moment where people wouldn't be caught dead in the theater. I, I, I have friends saying, well, it's, it's too stagey. <laughs> it's too slow. It's too, I can't, I can't deal with it. Um, but, and so... Being around theater people and going going to plays and so on was was a was a real a real treat and a real it's, you know my, I think if I could have chosen I would have loved to be a playwright I, I love I love the idea yeah <laughs> I've got one in me I loved that idea of just sitting at Sardi's with the actors and I loved that whole world so that was interesting and and Blair herself was is is just a it's just a wonderful person so she you know she paid me well and she put up with me. I would say it wasn't my finest hour as an employee because I had so much going on and I was kind of struggling to pay the rent and struggling to write and dating and in my 20s, post-college. And so it, it wasn't my finest hour and they tolerated that. But I've always sort of felt that if her son wanted to get in touch with me, he could, but I wasn't going to stalk him. However, I did run into Blair recently because she has a house up in, I think, Cornwall, somewhere up in Litchfield County near where we are on the weekends. And we had a great time catching up and, and reminiscing. And she's in a bunch of stuff now. I think she was just in Orange is the New Black. And she's doing, she was doing a couple plays. Um, she did the Uma Thurman play, um, which was a lot of fun. And so it was just really fun to remember that moment in my life because it was sort of it was, it was two years was encapsulated and then it, 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 I moved on and we lost touch. And so it was nice to circle back. He was an amazing kid and I, I'd be really curious to know what he's doing. So <laughs> if you're listening. <laughs> um, do you have any advice to aspiring writers? Yes. Let's see. I, I probably have pages of advice. I mean, I guess, I guess one thing that I found helpful was something someone told me when I was having those days where you'd sit down to write and you'd just be completely frustrated because everything was so bad that, that came out. And the the whole idea of the 80% rule where you're going for, try, try to do something that you approve of 80% rather than going for perfection because it can kind of lower the bar and, and just make you feel more sort of able to take risks. Um, I think writers, we, we, we sort of have our good taste, right? And I think we start out incredibly judgmental of other writers, of ourselves, and so on. So um, 
it's, I think it's very important to try to turn down the critical voice and just get something on the page. And, and then the other sort of side of that coin is just, you can't, you just can't give up. I mean, that's basically it. So many people, when I was doing the MFA, I think we all came out thinking, oh God, you know, we're never going to get there. And um, then so many people published their books and have continued to publish. And it, I think the, you know, the, the persistence is, is uh, 80% of the battle to, to go back to the 80% again. So that, that's my, I think that's my main advice to sort of try not to be too critical and then to just keep going. I was just saying this to my husband on the street yesterday about we had this interesting meeting and just talking about what makes someone really successful. And it's just, sometimes it's just doing it, right? Like sometimes I read a book and I'm like, oh, I could have written that. But you know what? I didn't. Like I wasn't the one. Well, right. I could have taken that picture, but you know what? I didn't take that picture. And that's why I haven't, you know, so some of it is literally, I think as you're saying, um, not that I have done it, but um, just in getting it done in some way. And well, right. And what, what people don't talk about is, is there is inspiration, right? You have those great days where you feel inspired and it just flows out of you. But the inspirational moments, I find, they don't just hit you walking down the street. You have to be struggling for a few days and then you, you, you get a moment. You sort of earn a moment and it sort of it, suddenly it's taking off. But I think people don't talk, you know, you sort of feel, oh, God, I must be a total fraud if I'm not just massively inspired each and every day but then the fact is once you're sort of sitting down and trying to do a routine as much as possible then then the, it, it, it sets the stage for inspiration to come and it allows inspiration to come so I think that was that was really good for me to observe here and there that that oh that was such an easy day I, I just whipped through that scene or whatever it was because but it was because I'd done the the preparation to get there and I think that 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 is not just it's not just drudgery or inspiration it's sort of a bit of both and what are you working on now what's coming next so I'm working on a couple things I'm working on a first person novel about uh two two female friendship which it seems like uh since the Ferrante that's what everyone's doing now but <laughs> jumping right in there and I'm also toying with a YA novel I've always, they always, you know, they always want you to write YA because YA sells. And so everybody's, write a YA, write a, write a YA. And I've never had an idea. And I just kept saying, no, 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 I've got nothing. I've got nothing. And then suddenly I thought, oh, no, wait a minute. I do. I do have an idea. So uh, I'm sort of, I haven't really started writing, but I'm sort of mapping it out. And then I'm working on this first person novel. So it's, it's fun to be back to first person, go back to where I started after doing stories and doing third person and so on. It's, it's nice to kind of go home again. <laughs> well, great. So. Well, I'll be looking for that. I can't wait. Um, thank you so much for, for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I really appreciate all your time. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Zibi. And to all the listeners, please don't forget to subscribe. And if you could leave a, a five-star rating or a comment, that would be amazing. Also, a reminder that this episode has been sponsored by Babo Botanicals. Um, Babo, B-A-B-O Botanicals, which um, is an all-natural um, skin care, sun care, um, Shampoo, everything. You should just uh, check great. it out. <laughs> All right, thanks a lot.